You are listening to the Prepared Warrior Podcast, where law enforcement and military trainers discuss cutting-edge training, tactics, and technology. Here is your host, John Wilson. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of the Prepared Warrior. I'm John Wilson. Our guest for this episode is Mark Bloxham. I like to start every episode with a quote. This one is from Winston Churchill, who said, Success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Our guest Mark Bloxham is currently a sergeant with a large Canadian police agency. He has 27 years of service. During that time, he has worked as an exhibit tech in patrol, the communications section, 18 years in the public safety unit, and over five years in the officer safety unit. Mark has received a variety of instructor-level certifications in such areas as ground fighting, tactical baton, chemical munitions, specialty impact munitions, and more. Additionally, he has served four years as detective assigned to major crimes and in domestic offender crimes and the homicide section. Mark is also a certified threat pattern recognition use of force and firearms instructor trainer. He is a court-recognized expert in police use of force, patrol tactics, and officer safety training. Mark has provided training to police officers overseas in Spain, Andorra, the West Bank, and the Middle East. Also the founder and owner of Canadian Innovative Protective Solutions, Inc. Thank you for coming on. Hi, good morning. So first, I'd like to talk about um, your experience in international policing. Now, you spent a year conducting training in the Middle East as part of Operation Proteus, as it's called. How did you get selected for this? Uh, well, the international policing uh, opportunity um, came up, you know, a year before my deployment. Um, but I, I've been working towards it my entire career. So um, I've been working towards it through training and also private sector opportunities overseas. But this particular mission, um, as a Canadian police officer, all police officers that are selected for deployment go through the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and, uh, you know, my agency is the Edmonton Police Service. So um, uh, I, I, my name was on the list and I was pre-selected and uh, the Proteus opportunity came up, which was a very unique opportunity. And my name was put forward and I was very fortunate to be selected. And so where were you specifically and, and what were your tasks? Uh, so the Proteus mission is actually a Canadian Forces mission. Um and uh, I lived in I lived in Israel. I lived in uh, in Jerusalem, and I worked in the West Bank. So I commuted uh, with my uh, Ontario provincial police partner um, down into the West Bank uh, to the city of Jericho, which is the oldest city on earth and the lowest city on earth. And I worked uh, as part of an international advisory team uh, as advisors to the Palestinian Security Authority. How did your training techniques translate over there? Well, it, uh, we we ended up uh, we we were basically advisors to a um, to a leadership course, and I worked with the Dutch, uh, British Army, Italian Carbonari, and and like I said, a couple Canadian police officers, and mm -hmm. we all brought to the table different packages and uh, sort of suites of information and knowledge. And what our job was, was to mentor the instructor cadre there and assist them with developing uh, leadership through tactics. 
And uh, what what we did as Canadian police officers was we inserted a variety of different uh, in sort of policing tactics that would be utilized in, in urban and rural environments to, to augment the training. The Palestinian security forces are about uh, seven different security organizations, and they're not a military because of the Oslo Accords, and they're not purely a police agency. They're kind of a paramilitary organization. So... Um, our goal was to provide a variety of different types of tactics training to uh, instill leadership skills. And with our Italian and uh, British Army friends, they kind of came up with different things. So as a group, we sort of inserted uh, those tactics into the program over the nine months, the nine months that the leadership course actually ran. So what was it like working with uh, you know people from all over the world in, in a different place, uh, uh, I'm guessing you probably haven't been very very much or at I've all. I've never been to Israel. I had mm-hmm. I had done a brief contract um, in the Middle East for Setcan, actually, um, probably about five, four or five years ago. Um, that was in in Dubai, uh, but this uh, right. this was a very unique experience. Um, it was I arrived in July, uh, so it was between 46 and 52 degrees Celsius when I first arrived. And um, it was a it was a unique political experience because it was um, what we were I wouldn't say we weren't welcomed but we weren't necessarily uh, paid a lot of attention to initially so we were put into some uh, office accommodations that were less than desirable and uh, it was actually it actually took probably about three weeks just to get climatized to the heat um, you know you basically you're always sweating when it's that hot so even you know you try to have a shower and you just start sweating again in the air conditioning so it was it was a big it was a big adjustment initially i would say about three weeks before you could even sort of function uh, without going outside and just sort of pouring sweat so th- that was that was interesting and then you know there's the there's the language i mean we had some really really talented and skilled language assistants uh palestinian uh folks that speak multiple languages. So that was very helpful. And uh, we ended up building uh, pretty good relationships with uh, the, ins- the instructor counterparts we had there. But it, took, you know, it takes quite a while when you're, when you're building trust and understanding different cultures. So uh, it, it was, I would say, professionally, probably one of the most challenging things I've ever done. Uh, would you say was there stressful moments? I know you know it's it's a lot different than in North America where um, people people aren't as on edge here going about their their daily life. But when you're when you're around police officers, I know they're often a, a target, right? Well, you know, without getting into all the politics of, of Palestine and Israel, I right. mean, we were we were on a Palestinian military base um, in the West Bank. Um, so, you know, day to day, you know, things were fine. But, I mean, there's there's always a, an, on, an ever-present level of tension that it's, it's hard to even describe. It's palpable, you know. So, you know, there, there's Israeli jets flying overhead. And, you know, you're looking across the border into Jordan. And uh, you're moving back and forth through um, Israeli checkpoints. So it's, uh, it, it's a pretty interesting, it's in a pretty interesting place to live and um and work for a year i'll tell you that much so after a certain amount of time you got used to the the weather and and the uh, 
a different culture? Are there any kind of important lessons that that uh, you're able to take back to your training in North America? I think I think I would dwell primarily on the positive, and that's um, I think that Canadian police officers, um, you know, are, are are really highly professional, and I think Canadians internationally and international missions are well regarded. And I think we did a very, I think we did a good job, frankly, in, in representing Canadian policing there. And it made me really appreciate what I have here with my agency and what we have in Canada and a lot of the things we take for granted. Working uh, with the internationals was fantastic. Our commanders were Dutch Army. Um, working with the British British Army there, too, the, the guys we worked with, uh, a commissioned officer and a non-commissioned officer. They cycled out of mission uh, twice, so there's two different teams we worked with. Their deployments were six months, ours were a year. And then the Italian Carbonari, I have a great deal of respect for um, those guys, also a major and a warrant officer, uh, both of whom had, you know, probably nine international deployments under their belt, have, have worked, uh, you know, in Algeria and Kosovo and in Africa and in Iraq and Afghanistan and have sort of been there and done that. Uh, the Carbonari is a unique organization it's a paramilitary organization so it's uh, uh, great guys to work with and i think as part of an international team we we really worked well together and we had a uh, an american car contractor from dynacor who was also with us who was a former police officer from the states who had also served overseas for about nine years so it was an absolute pleasure and honor to work you know as part of that international team and i think uh I think what we achieved there, not a lot of people know about, but I think we, we represented well, and uh, we certainly had daily challenges working in, uh, in a different culture, but also working in an Arabic military culture is uh, is a very interesting dynamic. Sure, yeah. Are, was there anything that surprised you the most um, within their uh, you know military and police or the people you were training about the... <laughs> how they how they did things differently yeah well you know I, first of all what i will say is is there was a lot of professional young officers both in the instructor cadre and the student cadre and a lot of enthusiasm um the culture as i've come to learn is is very old school and there are certain things that we take for granted in in, in western policing and military organizations and i again these are just my observations but uh, i would say um, you know, we tend to encourage independent thinking, encourage uh, initiative, and oftentimes in that culture, that's punished because it doesn't come from the boss. And if the boss isn't making the decision, you have these issues about losing faith. Um, you know, there's there's intimidation and fear that happens, um, and that's that's basically based on old military ideologies that that don't aren't used the same way in the Western world uh, on a day-to-day -day basis anyway. So um, that way it was just very challenging working in that environment. They're also very, very uh, rank conscious. Um, so, you know, I'm a non-commissioned officer. I'm a, I'm a sergeant with a police agency. Um, and, you know, the roles and responsibilities I have as a sergeant in a major, Edmund, uh, major uh, Canadian police agency uh, probably are similar to that of a, you know, a captain in a military environment, just in terms of span and control and dynamics. 
and uh, you know if you didn't have a commission on your arm with certain people there then you were you were almost uh, uh, invisible which is which is fine but it was just a, it was just a really interesting dynamic to to try to, to work in that environment and forge relationships and ultimately we made uh, we forged some very good relationships with our peers um, the instructors we were there to assist and in fairness to them there was uh, some young NCOs um, and young commissioned officers there that, that are the backbone of that organization. So it was, it was great to see that. So how, how do you go about, I guess, teaching something like, like critical thinking or, or thinking outside the box when it comes to, um, um, you know, police um, tactics or training? You know, I don't think you, you try to, start something off and say we're going to teach critical thinking i think what you do is you you share operational experience of what works in in our environments you, you try to draw parallels of similarities in those environments and then when it comes to you know use of force training and tactics which is which is what you know i was teaching there for some for some of the time you you just focus on simplicity and simplicity and tactics and don't make things complicated and then when you run scenarios and exercises you make them as realistic as possible and uh, you can build confidence when you provide training like that the other side of that was we were teaching basic tactics but then we were also teaching leadership of those tactics so it was allowing those guys to actually run scenarios and be at times unsuccessful but then successful in those scenarios too so all really challenging in a, in a very hot environment, political environment, uh, through language assistance and trying to get your, your point across and your passions across. Uh, uh, I, you know, I really encourage any tactics instructors out there that want to push themselves, try going to a different country and doing it all through uh, a language assistant. And it, it will really test you and your abilities. What are some of the ways that you would... Um... Uh, manage uh, stress of, of those kind of, uh, you know, extra stressors, I guess, on uh, on your work? Uh, well, you know, I'm surrounded by a really good support team. Uh, my partner, OPP um, staff sergeant, now uh, soon to be inspector, Brad Kolbeck, was my the guy I was with on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, we would have some pretty good debriefs uh, uh, every time we left the base. And, and uh, the internationals uh, were just great, uh, you know, to get to talk about things. And although we're although we differ in some ways, we approach things in very similar ways. So it was pretty easy to sort of plug in with uh, the Brits, the Italians, the Dutch in terms of our mindset on how to get things done. So that was that was affirming that uh, that leadership uh, and tactics um, are similar in, in the Western agencies. And then, uh, you know, I was surrounded by um, 24 members of the Canadian Armed Forces as part of the mission I was with. So there was a, a good um, social outlet there and also a good opportunity to uh, to debrief on a regular basis with them. So and, and we were we we lived outside the West Bank. So you could kind of leave your work behind you and then come come to your accommodations and then head back. So, right. So you started the um, uh, company, the Canadian Innovative Protective Solutions, Inc. Uh, how did you first get started um, in that uh, kind of private sector? 
I was working uh, as an officer safety instructor, and my agency had, I've been very fortunate to get a lot of uh, training and, uh, and um, development opportunities. And I was seeing a lot of inquiries from the public sector, both law enforcement. In Alberta, we have something called the Community Peace Officer Group, which is uh, um, sort of special constables that do um, law enforcement duties that aren't criminal code in nature. So they they typically are not armed with a firearm. And then, you know, there's professional security organizations and then a lot of other different organizations that I just felt could benefit from getting quality information and training from uh, you know, people who had who, who were fortunate to have more knowledge, and that's why I started the company. I started the company in two thousand, um, and in that time, over the years, we've served over a hundred clients um, at all levels of government and all levels of the private sector. Um, and we provide uh, it's, it's innovative protective solutions. So I'd like to say that we develop protective solutions based on the need of the client. So that may be arrest and control tactics training. It might be assessing a program to look at uh, development opportunities. It could be emergency vehicle operations training. Uh, it can be the hard skills training, but I'm also and have been open to consulting opportunities, and we've done a lot of those types of things as well over the years. So I've been very, very fortunate with, with the company. Um, it's afforded me the opportunity to travel internationally. I, I forged a partnership with a... Um, with a Spanish company, TBPE, mm-hmm. uh, back in, in 2003. And we've collaborated on many, many courses, both in Spain and in Canada. Um, and I know that uh, my colleagues at TBPE have spent time in Winnipeg at SETCAN as well. And uh, I like to connect people from different groups together. So that's, I think, maybe uh, one, of, one of the strengths. Having a company off the corner of your desk when you're a full-time a police officer certainly has its challenges. Right. Um, you'll never bring a company sort of to the next level unless you have the full time and, and opportunity to invest in it. But, uh, you know, that it is what it is. It's still uh, still uh, pushing forward with a lot of cool things in 2019. We're going to be doing a lot of cool things with the IPS. Yeah, so the you have a training service. Uh, you have so many different... Um kind of training courses and services, but one's called uh, Reality One. Is that, that's the uh, combined one with uh, Spain or? Yeah. So um, my partner, Emilio in Spain, um, always referred to, there's two, two realities when it comes to training, tactics training. In, most of the time, in our opinion, in, in the policing world we work in, we do reality two training. So we, we don't push the officer to, into an environment that is 100% realistic because we there's safety, there's time concerns, there's all these concerns. The reality, too, is that, you know, the, the subject will only attack at 50% and the officer will always prevail. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's merits to that type of training at a certain level, for sure. You have to be incremental in your training. You have to start slowly. But we also like to push the dynamics and training environments to a much more intense and realistic level. And that's what we endeavored to do with reality one or R one training. And we've been successful with it in the past. We're just rebranding it. And uh, we plan on running a few courses in Canada, uh, instructor level reality one courses 
uh, in Canada in 2019 for poor law enforcement. On your site, uh, it boasts uh, Reality One is the most realistic scenarios. What what are some of the ways that uh, that you go about achieving this? Well, I don't know about boasts, but I've had the good fortune to see a lot of training. And when I first saw Reality One training in Spain, um, these guys pushed the dynamics uh, in training to such a high level that it was visceral even to watch. So darkening the environments, um, attacking the officers in low light conditions, um, including smells in the environments, uh, real blood on the floor, um, simulating um, homicides and suicide situations that the first couple times I saw them, I thought that I, the first one I saw I thought was a training accident, the suicide simulation that I saw in a rapid deployment scenario. So I think what with Reality One uh, working together, we've been able to sort of um, in, enhance the safety protocols and still uh, push the training to the next level. The other thing with with the with the Spaniards with TDPE is the the techniques themselves that they that they train tear things down to the absolute most simplistic gross motor skill techniques, which is uh, which is always what we need to strive for, so that we have the ability to do it under stress. And the the dynamics in these courses and the intensity and the team building that happens in these courses uh, is is absolutely second to none. So um, lots of good training out there. Um, some training out there isn't up to what it should be. Uh, but in my opinion, Reality One is is up there with with uh, with some of the best training you could get for uh, frontline officer or operator or instructor. And um, we're going to continue to move forward with trying to uh, deliver that more here. Logistically, it's difficult for us uh, with the the companies on the other side of the world to come together to through these courses. But that's what we're going to going to be doing here this year, next year. Sorry. How has reality-based training evolved over the time that you've spent uh, doing scenario training? Well, um, you know, you know Jeff Quayle at SecCan, who's a, who's a friend of mine, obviously. Um, I would say that you know that guy probably single-handedly has pushed um, reality-based training to the next level with a lot of the technology that he's introduced with shock knife and stress vests and and all these other things that continue to move forward. Um, there's, a, there's other systems out there. There's, um, there's, there's systems out there that simulate um, um, arterial bleeds, you know, combat systems that uh, simulate arterial bleeds. And I think the, the important thing is to train instructors to have a very good understanding of tactics and skills and also augment that with technology to use the technology in a creative way that creates realistic training environments. And with things like stress vest and um, shock knife and uh, blood pumping systems and um, really switched on instructors, uh, we can continue to create training that's more realistic. Now, you don't throw, as you know, you don't throw an officer straight into a high-end Uh, intense reality one training you always have building blocks that you follow first and all those protocols of creating a need and static repetition and then stimulus response training and all these things and then reality one training is sort of the end game where we make things as realistic as possible and i would just encourage canadian police um tactics instructors 
to critically look at their training and ask themselves, are, are we are we actually preparing our officers um, for the levels of risk and threat that they're, they're going to encounter in real life? Or are we creating training that just sort of checks a box and gets everybody um, through a simple scenario that everybody wins all the time? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that we, in training, we have to embrace not being successful in training more often. You know, um, when you get attacked, and uh, and you and you lose in in training. It's a it's a difficult thing to do in front of your peers, and uh, you know there's an emotional um, issues surrounding that, and there's embarrassment. And but the reality is that's exactly the time and place to lose is is in training, and you can only you can only come back from that and bring it to the next level by increasing the intensity of training and, and becoming more skilled. And I and I just I don't, I don't know if there's enough of that out there, to be honest with you. you you've mentioned it a couple times, but why, why would you say it's important to keep um, training exercises or certain, um, certain training simple? Well, John, all training should be simple. I mean, under high degrees of stress, gross motor skills are all we have available to us. And regardless of the level, fitness level, the skill level, uh, of the of the officer or the operator uh, under extreme stress, gross motor skills are what is going to work for us. So when we when we develop protective skills training, it's always trying to make it as simplistic as possible and make the techniques as simplistic as possible. And and that should that should always be the goal. How important would you say is uh, ongoing research and? in developing curriculums for training uh, for the public and private sector, uh, you know, security and law enforcement? Oh, it's always important. Um, I, I think a lot of times uh, what I say about that, though, is that those of us that have a passion for officer safety and tactics training for many years, we're always looking for the next answer, you know, the next system to come out, the next technique to come out that's going to be the one that's different and better than the last one. And a lot of times the answer is right in front of you with simplicity. Right. And, and I think it's really good for instructors, officer safety instructors to take as much training as they possibly can, uh, both martial arts and um, control tactics and firearms and all this stuff and take, if the budget allows, take good training and critically look at other training to say, hey, you know what, that doesn't offer what I think it should, but I have enough understanding now to appreciate why instead of just uh, taking a cool course from somebody who's cool and does something interesting. Um, it's great training with people like that, and sometimes you'll get absolute pieces of gold, but sometimes... Sometimes you got to be careful that what you're getting isn't just to sell a course. Right. Yeah. Uh, I guess the, the cult of personality might uh, override the usefulness. Exactly. And, you know, set, you know, stress fest is a prime example of how somebody who doesn't understand stress inoculation training could look at something like stress fest and say, Oh, this is a gimmick. You know, this is a piece of technology that they're just trying to sell um, to, to sell units, you know, uh, but when you actually look at the resiliency of the units, it's themselves. Yeah. You look at the creativity of what 
an instructor can do with a system like stress vest in terms of uh, basic firearm skills, sight alignment, uh, you know, using the belt on the operator to test the, the light, the, the, uh, the sights, and then actually moving it into dynamic training. Um, you know, I'm not, I didn't come on here to try to sell stress vest or any mm-hmm. set, set cam product. I really didn't, John, but um, I think in the hands of good, knowledgeable instructors, those pieces of technology can really augment the training to the next level. And when I ran our training section, I was fortunate enough to bring some of these pieces of technology on board. And what I encouraged my instructors to do was just, hey, this isn't a novelty that you put a vest on and you shock somebody. This is a piece of technology that we can use. And if you understand it properly, you can evolve the training program so that this is just a piece of technology we use. The key is having knowledgeable instructors at the other end to be able to understand how to implement that technology properly. And I think, you know, in our organization, we are fortunate to, to be doing that here. Um, although I'm out of our training section now, I'm, I'm happy to say that a lot, of those, a lot of those pieces of technology are still being used here. And, and the Edmonton Police Service was one of the first agencies in Canada to, to get on board with that stuff. So. And just uh, one more question for you. Uh, what do you like best about uh, being involved in this kind of uh, dynamic training? Well, ultimately, um, ultimately, if we as instructors can provide any information, knowledge, or experience that helps to keep people safe in bad situations, um, you know, that, that's ultimately the gift, isn't it? I mean, it's not really about us. It's about bringing like-minded people together that are willing to go into dangerous situations and make a difference. And, uh, you know, I truly believe that um, police work and other similar vocations are a calling, and it's not your average person who can do it. And um, they're worthy of having the best information and training possible. And, uh, you know, any small role I can play as far as putting some of that together, then that. You know, it's an honor just to be part of it. Well, it was great having you on the program. Thanks so much, uh, Mark, for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks, John. Appreciate it. This has been the Prepared Warrior Podcast. For more info on our guests or other episodes, check out thepreparedwarrior.com. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the Prepared Warrior Podcast, email j-o-n at thepreparedwarrior.com. 